Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 332, Emlyn's Humble Inquiry. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm really excited to present to you some selections from a lost classic, a very interesting little Unitarian Christian book from the year 1702. This book is now the first publication by Theophilus Press, which is the imprint of the Unitarian Christian Alliance. Right now, you can get this book in paperback or ebook format on Amazon.com. This is a book which I had read years ago. Of course, I read it in its original language, which was the English of 1702. And I thought to myself, wow, this is an awesome book. This is a book that all Christians should read. And it's not a hard book either. It's an easy book. The language is plain. The reasoning is clear. The author doesn't waste a word. But then my experience teaching college students kicked in, and I realized that an average person in the 21st century really is not going to be able to read this book profitably. They're going to be worn out after just a couple of pages by the weird font, by the differences in punctuation, by the differences in vocabulary. English, like all languages, has changed a lot since 1702. Over about the last year, my colleague Keegan Chandler, who's also on the board of the Unitarian Christian Alliance, and I have gone through and modernized every single sentence of this book. We've modernized the punctuation. We've corrected and added footnotes, scriptural and otherwise. And we've basically reclaimed this book for today's reader. And if you're a UCA partner in the U.S. or Canada, as of August 31st, 2021... You're going to be receiving a paperback copy of this book free in the mail sometime in September. And if you're elsewhere in the world, we're going to email you an ebook version. This is a way that the UCA wants to thank its partners. If you'd like to be a partner by the time we have our next giveaway, I'll put a link for that in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. One of the awesome things about this book is the impact it had when it comes to religious freedom. And for the whole story, you're going to want to get the book and read Keegan Chandler's very thorough historical introduction to it. But just to summarize, this book came out at a time in which people in Great Britain were rethinking their traditional Christian intolerance towards, quote, heresy. For writing this book, Thomas Emlyn was prosecuted under blasphemy laws in Dublin, Ireland. The man was thrown in jail and subjected to an unreasonably high fine. And it really pricked the consciences of a lot of people, whether Trinitarian or Unitarian. Thomas Emlyn, as best we can tell, never blasphemed a day in his life. Emlyn is really a role model of mine. He's an excellent example of Christ-like courage and faithfulness in the face of persecution. He's got the courage of a Martin Luther without a lot of the nastiness that was also in Martin Luther. I literally have an image of the author Thomas Emlyn here in my office. I'm looking right at it as I record this. The full title of his book is 
An Humble Inquiry into the Scripture Account of Jesus Christ, a short argument concerning His deity and glory according to the Gospel. It's a short, tightly argued, scripture-focused book. He wrote it as a former Presbyterian pastor to explain why he no longer accepted the mainstream Catholic and Protestant theory that Jesus is God, or fully divine, or the second person of a triune God. Really, it's focused not so much on the Trinity as on Christology. It shows the differences between Jesus and God, that Jesus is a separate and a lesser being, and that Jesus is a real man. And it really makes the case quite well, whilst avoiding a lot of speculation, philosophical difficulties, and the like. In short, it's a convincing, carefully reasoned, and scriptural refutation of the deity of Christ. We're going to pick it up in chapter 2, called The Human Jesus, section 2.1, How Jesus Denies Having Divine Attributes. One great and unique perfection of the deity is absolute, underived omnipotence. He who cannot work all miracles and do whatever he chooses on his own, without help from another, can never be the supreme being, or God, because he appears to be a defective being, comparatively, since he needs help and can receive additional strength from someone else. Now it is most evident that our Lord Jesus, whatever power he had, confesses again and again that he did not have infinite power on his own. Of myself, I can do nothing, John 5.30. He had been speaking of great miracles, namely raising the dead and carrying out all judgment. But all along, he takes care that we should know that his sufficiency for these things was from God the Father. In the beginning of the discourse, he says, The Son can do nothing but what he sees the Father do, John 5.19. And in the middle, the Father has given to the Son to have life in himself, John 5.26. And as if he could never too much impress this great truth on our minds, he adds towards the conclusion, I can do nothing of myself, or from nothing that is myself do I draw this power and authority. Surely this is not the voice of God, but of a man. For the Most High can receive from no one, as it says in Romans 11.35, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? He cannot be made more mighty or wise, etc., because no addition can be made to absolute perfection. And since power in God is an essential perfection, it follows that if it is derived, then so is the essence or being itself, which is blasphemy against the Most High. For it is to ungod him, to number him among dependent, derivative beings. But the Supreme God indeed is only he who is the first cause and absolute source of all. Furthermore, our Lord Jesus speaks of himself here in contrast to his Father, who he says gave him all power. Now if he had such an eternal divine word united more nearly to him than the Father, surely he would have admitted his power to be from that word or divine Son. How can it be that he ascribes nothing to that, since this word is supposed to be equal in power to the Father himself, and more nearly allied to Jesus Christ as the operating agent in him? He says instead that 
My Father in me does the works, John 14.10, by which it is clear there was no divine agent in and with him except the Father, who alone has all power of himself and needs no assistance. Another infinite perfection that must be in the deity is supreme, absolute goodness. All nations have consented to this by the light of nature, that the Greek ta'agathon, the good, and the Latin optimus maximus, best and greatest, are the main titles of the supreme. As the orator says, he is one than whom nothing better, nothing greater can be conceived the fullest and highest of all that are called good, for indeed all other goodness is derived from him. But the Lord Jesus explicitly disavows this description, good. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Mark 10.18 Here it is most evident that he distinguishes himself from God as not the same with him, and denies of himself what he affirms of God. And as to that divine perfection of supreme, infinite goodness, he challenges the man for presuming to say words which seemed to attribute it to him, and leads him off to another who alone is good in a higher sense. It's astonishing to see what violence is done to the sacred text by those who maintain the equality of Jesus Christ to God his Father. How strange it is to suppose that our Lord's meaning is, I know, man, you do not understand me to be God, as I am. Why then do you give me the title belonging to him only? There is not one word in the context which suggests this. Christ never challenges the poor man with this, that he thought too lowly of Jesus, as they suppose, but quite to the contrary, that he thought or spoke too highly of him. And truly, if the man's error was thinking too lowly of Christ, while his words otherwise were fairly enough applied to him, I cannot think our Lord would have rebuked him in that manner. For instead of keeping him still on the right subject and correcting his wrong conceptions about it, he seems clearly to carry him off to another from himself as not the right subject, without correcting his thoughts of Christ at all. And for what purpose could Christ rebuke him in such a way that he never tells him what his mistake was, but rather tempts him to run away into another mistake? But rather than thinking too lowly of Christ, it'd make more sense, if anyone back then actually thought this, that the man thought Jesus to be God. For if he thought Jesus to be the supreme good, that is to think of him as God. If he only meant that Jesus was a less than supreme good, how could Christ rebuke him for it, since that would reflect no fault or error? And of course, those who say Christ's receiving worship while on earth proves his deity can't explain why this man should give or why Christ should receive worship, as we see in Mark 10.17, unless he thought Christ was God. But whatever the man thought, he said what Jesus Christ thought was only properly said about God and which was too much to be said about himself, as the obvious sense of his words declares. Let me add that, if our Lord Jesus on purpose left the matter unclear, not willing to reveal who he was at that time, then it is strange that the evangelists, who many years afterward relate the matter, when it was necessary for people to believe, as it is supposed, that Christ was supreme God, 
should not clarify the matter by inserting some cautious clause, such that Christ said this to test the man, or because he knew the man denied his deity, or the like. For sometimes, on lesser occasions, they give such cautions. But even though three of the evangelists relate this discourse, they all do it the same way, and not one of them gives us the slightest hint to direct us to this secret way of interpretation, but leaves us liable to a most fatal mistake, even recommended to us by this report, if Jesus Christ were indeed the supreme good, in as high a sense as God the Father, which he apparently denies here, and by that denies himself to be the Most High God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, why two natures speculations don't help. Skipping a bit, here is section 2.2, entitled, Why Two Natures Speculations Don't Help. What can be said against these clear arguments? I imagine our opponents have only one move left for evading them, and that is a distinction which serves them in all cases. They say Jesus Christ says these things about himself, quote, as man only, end quote, while he had another nature, quote, as God, end quote, which he reserved and accepted out of the case, so that when he says, I cannot do this myself, or I am not to be called the chief good, or I do not know this, etc., according to them, the meaning is, I don't have these perfections in my human nature. Nonetheless, I know and can do all unassisted, and am the chief good in my divine nature, which is also more properly myself. I intend now to expose the futility of this tricky move by showing how absurd it is to suppose that this distinction of two natures removes the force of such expressions from Christ's own mouth, which in their natural and ordinary appearance proclaim his inferiority to God, even the Father. And I shall dwell more on this because it's the most popular and common evasion and comes in at every turn when all other relief fails. It's reasonable for us to ask what hint of such a distinction of two natures they can point us to in any of these discourses of Christ. Should we devise or imagine for him such a strange and seemingly deceitful way of speaking simply to uphold our own precarious opinion? But I have several remarks to make about this common answer. My first objection is that our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, if he was the supreme God in any nature of his own, he could not have said, it seems to me, consistently with truth and sincerity, which he always maintained strictly, that he could not do or did not know something, which all this while he himself could do or did know very well, as surely as if he were the supreme God, he could and did. This would be to make him say what is most false and to equivocate in the most deceitful manner. 
even if we should suppose he consisted of two infinitely distant natures, and so had two capacities of knowing and acting, yet since he includes them both, it follows that when he denies something of himself in absolute terms, without any limitation in the words or other obvious circumstances, he plainly implies a denial of its belonging to any part of his person or any nature in it. Although we may affirm a thing of a person which belongs only to a part of him, as I may properly say a man is wounded or hurt, though it only be in one part, suppose an arm, yet I cannot rightly deny a thing of him which belongs only to one part, because it belongs not to another. I can't say a man is not wounded, because although one arm is shot or wounded, yet the other is unharmed. For instance, I have two organs of sight, two eyes. Now suppose I converse with a man with one eye shut and the other open. If being asked whether I saw him, I should dare to say that I didn't see him without any qualification, meaning to myself that I didn't see him with the eye which was shut, although I saw him well enough with the eye which was open, I fear I would be criticized as a liar and deceiver notwithstanding such a mental reservation as some would attribute to the holy Jesus. For knowledge is the eye of the person. Jesus Christ is supposed to have two of these knowing capacities, the one weak, the other strong and piercing, discerning all things. Now as such a one, the disciples come to him and ask him when the end of the world and time of his coming shall be. Matthew 24.3 he answers them by giving them some general account of the matter, but says that he didn't know the particular day and hour, nor did any know them except the Father, meaning, say my opponents, that it wasn't included in his human knowledge, although he knew it well enough with his divine nature, at the same time that he said absolutely and without qualification that the Son doesn't know it. If Jesus Christ had a divine knowledge and nature, no doubt his disciples, who, if anyone must have believed it, would have directed their questions to that divine capacity of his, rather than to the imperfect human capacity. And yet in answer to their question, he says he didn't know the day, which would not be counted as sincere or truthful in ordinary people. But surely we mustn't think Jesus Christ was dishonest in this way. For in his mouth there was no guile. 1 Peter 2.21 let us not impute it to him. I'm going to skip a little bit more now and read you a little bit more towards the end of his chapter 2, The Human Jesus. Finally, it seems significant to me, in opposition to this way of interpretation, that the evangelists never take any occasion, when they had so many, to add any warning against taking Christ's words in their obvious sense, when he says that he did not know the hour and the like. If, as is said, our Lord didn't intend to reveal his divinity, although I still don't see why he should deny it in this way, nevertheless, his apostles, who wrote so many years after and intended to reveal all important truths most clearly, would not fail to have guided the reader by removing such obvious objections against the supreme deity of Christ, and by saying that he said this only in respect of his human nature, that he didn't know all things, etc., but there is not one warning given, as often we find they gave about lesser matters. No doubt it was because they wanted Jesus' words to be understood at face value, 
not thinking of any such secret qualification in Christ's mind, of a divine nature in his person, which is an implied exception, when he had denied such perfections of his person without qualification. Thus it remains good that Jesus Christ denies infinite perfections to belong to him as they belong to the Father, and therefore that he is not the same infinite God with him if we can believe his own words. When the Trinity's podcast returns, but can't we prove the deity of Christ from the fact that Jesus is worshipped in the New Testament? In this segment, I'm going to read you the entirety of his section 3.2, which is titled, Answering Arguments from the Worship of Jesus. No doubt I could maintain my cause just as well on the topic of divine worship, which is another way my opposers would try to establish the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's easy to show that there is no instance of supreme divine worship given ultimately to Christ in Scripture. But on the contrary, all the honor it assigns to him is such as assumes him to be inferior to the Father and dependent on him, since it is wholly grounded upon what God his Father has graciously bestowed on him. Thus, he requires baptism, if that's an act of immediate proper worship, in his name because all power in heaven and earth was given to him. Matthew 28.18 Thus, we must honor the Son as truly as, not as greatly as, we honor the Father, because the Father has committed or given all judgment to him. John 5.22-23 Thus, at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow, and every tongue confess him to be Lord, because, as a reward for his obedience, the Father has given him a name above every name. And it's added that all this honor is ultimately to the glory of the Father. Philippians 2, 8-11 Worship which is thus grounded upon derived and borrowed excellence is not supremely divine and cannot be offered to the infinite, self-existent, independent deity without a great offense, because it's not the most excellent. To praise an independent God for honor and power granted to him by another presupposes a falsehood and mixes together belittlements with praise. Although there may be the same common external acts or words, such as bowing the knee and saying glory and praise, etc., directed to both God and to the Mediator, as also in some instances they are given to ordinary people, yet the mind of a rational worshiper will make a distinction in his inward intention, as no doubt those devout Jews did, who in the same act, quote, bowed their heads and worshipped both God and the King. End quote. First Chronicles 29.20 But I shall not pursue this any further now.
Moreover, I judge that to assert Jesus Christ to be the supreme God destroys the gospel doctrine of his mediation. For if I must have one who is both supreme God and man to be my mediator with God, then when I speak to Jesus Christ as the supreme God, where is the God-man that must be my mediator with him? To say he mediates for himself is the same as to say that I must go to him without a mediator, and turns the whole business of mediation into metaphor, contrary both to the common way of things and to the scriptures. And I would like to know, what is this idea of going to God without a mediator, if it is just that he mediates for himself? Whoever doubted the exercise of his own wisdom or mercy, that these, in a manner of speaking, argue within him. But undeniably the scriptures speak of a mediator outside of God when they set forth Jesus Christ as such. And who could this mediator be if, as alleged, we go to Jesus Christ as the ultimate object of our supplication? If one says that only his human nature mediates, though as united to his divine nature, I object that this is still to make Christ the mediator for himself. For the human nature is not a God-man, And if the man or human nature alone is capable of being a mediator, then it's not necessary that Jesus Christ should be more than a man inhabited by and related to God in order to be able to play that role. Nor may it be said that its union with the divine nature gives an infinite efficacy to those acts of which the human nature alone is the source. For unless by that union the human nature was turned into an infinite or divine nature, its acts can no more be considered properly and intrinsically infinite in this case than his body or human understanding are infinite because they are united to an infinite divine nature. But what fully proves that the human nature of Christ can never be an effectual mediator, according to them, even though it's personally united to the divine nature, is that they deny this human nature, being so united, to have knowledge of the secret mental prayers, the inward desires and distresses of all Christians, or to know anyone's heart. How then can he be a compassionate intercessor in cases that he knows nothing of? How can he sympathize with their sufferings, which he doesn't know that they feel at all? What comfort is there in this understanding of Christ's mediation? The divine nature is precluded from it because they direct us to address ourselves to that nature as the ultimate object of our supplication through a mediator, and the human nature, they say, can know nothing of our plight, nor does it know our hearts, whether we worship sincerely or repent sincerely or merely hypocritically, and so it doesn't know how to represent or recommend us to God. What a sorry state do these theologians put us in. There is no mediator left to come between us and the supreme God, so we must deal with him immediately and alone, which they must admit is far from the gospel doctrine or method. Thus is the Lord Jesus ejected from his role on a pretense of giving him higher honor. On the whole, as far as I can see, we're better off being content with the Apostle Paul's clear and straightforward account of this matter, if its being so very intelligible doesn't count as an unpardonable objection against it, namely that there is but one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 Be assured that the Apostle Paul knew how to describe the mediator without leaving out the better half of him or the more important nature. Our mediator, according to him, was only called a man 
although he's also by role a god or ruler of all, made so by him who puts all things under him. And indeed, as there are two principal distinguishing doctrines of Christianity, the unity of the supreme God and the one mediator between him and us, so the Trinitarians have lost both among their various factions. For as they are divided into two main factions, besides several subdivisions, both among conformists and dissenters, one group holding three real persons or infinite beings, the other only one, for they are not yet agreed whether they worship three infinite supreme beings or only one. So between them both, these two great doctrines are undermined. The realists, those who think the persons of the Trinity are persons, leave room for a mediator in the Trinity, but they destroy the unity of God, who is one infinite being. On the other hand, they who hold true to the divine unity, believing in one infinite being with three modes or properties or relations, do by clear implication leave no place for such a mediator as they would like to have, namely, one who is an infinite God to be a mediator with the infinite God, when there is no other infinite being but him. Nor can he be thought to intercede with himself. To keep the gospel faith whole and undefiled, it's necessary to sail between both these rocks by believing God and his Christ to be two beings. So in this way, there will be room for one to mediate for the other. And these two will not be two equal supreme beings, but rather one will be subordinate to the other so in this way we may preserve the unity of the supreme God. Therefore, let us seriously consider not what the church in these latter days has thought about Jesus Christ, but rather what his own apostles, when inspired, have thought about him. I think no one was more likely or ever had a better opportunity to describe his Lord in the height of his glory than the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost that day of triumph with the newly and visibly inspired apostles. Hear how magnificently he describes his glorious Lord Jesus in front of his murderers. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God among you, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did by him in your midst. Acts 2.22 Again, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36 We observe that the apostle was aiming at such a description of Christ as might strike the hearts of his murderers with the greatest horror about their crime, and therefore he could never omit the most impressive portion of this description, namely Christ's infinite deity, if he had really been such. What a terrifying argument that would have been, able to produce more conviction in his persecutors than all the rest, to tell them that they had shed the blood of the infinite God himself. What the Apostle Peter says is certainly dull and weak in comparison with this, namely that he was a man approved by God. Did he not understand his mission, or was he trying to thwart it by such an omission? And yet, when he was far from being held back by any fear to confess Christ fully, he only describes Christ as a God by inhabitation and exaltation. 
Furthermore, if the deity of Christ were a fundamental teaching of the Christian faith, why is it that when poor convicted souls in anguish for their crimes seek advice about how to be saved from them, the apostle should not acquaint them with this teaching, but instead directs them to believe in Jesus as described above? Did he direct wounded souls to an insufficient Savior by not telling them that he was the infinite God? Yet they are baptized and added to the church and numbered among such as shall be saved. How can this be if the supreme deity of Christ is a fundamental teaching of the Christian faith? Likewise, he later preaches that, quote, God was with him, end quote, Acts 2.41. This was all. Skipping some, here's some more of his chapter 3 answering objections. For my own part, I write this while being duly impressed by those great relations in which the blessed Jesus stands to me, whom I credit as my great teacher, whom I desire to admire and love as my gracious, endeared benefactor, beyond father or mother or friends, etc., whom I revere as my Lord and ruler and solemnly expect as my final glorious judge, who is to come in his own and in his Father's glory, and through whom, in the meantime, I deal with God as my only mediator and intercessor. Therefore I earnestly profess that it's not without grievous and bitter displeasure that I should be employed in writing things which by so many well-meaning Christians will be misinterpreted to be derogatory to the honor of this great Redeemer. But I know he loves nothing but truth in his cause, and will never be offended, I hope, with any who stand by his own words, namely, The Father is greater than I. John 14.28 I think it a dangerous thing to say that God is not greater than he, or is not the head of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3 For to whom then will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Isaiah 40.25 I am persuaded that it's truth I plead for, and that supports me. When the Trinity's Podcast returns, some excerpts from the end of Emlyn's book. Now, a bit, not all, of his section 3.4 called Conclusion, a Call for Temperance. However, I wish they who are adversaries to my position would learn at least the modesty of one of the earliest extant writers for Christianity after the Apostles. I mean Justin Martyr disputing with Trypho the Jew and arguing for the honor of Jesus Christ, whom he calls, quote, 
a deity by the will of the Father, end quote, and one who, quote, ministered to his will, end quote, before his incarnation. This person attempts to show that Jesus Christ did pre-exist of old as a, quote, God, in his sense, and was later born of a virgin. But because, as he says, there were some who confessed him to be Christ and yet denied those points of his pre-existence and his miraculous birth from a virgin, Justin calmly says to his adversary, quote, If I shall not demonstrate these things, that he did pre-exist, etc., and was born of a virgin, yet still the cause is not lost as to his being the Christ of God. If I do not prove that he did pre-exist, etc., it is just to say that I am mistaken about this thing only. It doesn't follow that he is not the Christ. For whoever he is, it is fully proven that he is the Christ. As for those Christians who denied the aforementioned things and held him to be only a man who was born in the ordinary way, Justin only says of them, quote, with whom I do not agree, end quote. He does not damn them who differed from him, nor will he say, in the ranting dialect of some of our age, that the Christian religion is undermined, and that Christ is only an impostor and a broken reed to trust in unless he is the truly supreme God. To the contrary, still, he was sure that he is the true Christ, whatever else he might be mistaken in. It's desperate wickedness to risk the reputation of the genuineness and holiness of the blessed Jesus because of a difficult and disputable opinion. To dare to say that if they are mistaken in their opinion, which I truly believe they are, then Jesus Christ is a liar and a deceiver, a fake savior and the like. What is this but to expose Jesus to the scorn of unbelievers? Well, that's a good sample of Emlyn's argument. For the rest of it, you'll have to get the book. Whatever your view about Jesus is, I can tell you, it's a good read. And you'll appreciate the carefulness, the humility, and the faithfulness with which Thomas Emlyn writes. You'll want to check out the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. I've got a link to the Amazon page for this paperback and ebook there, as well as a link to a paperback of his complete works, if you're brave enough to tackle the early 18th century language original versions of his writings. There's also a link on the blog post to Theophilus Press. You can see what other exciting books we have coming up in the next year or so. But in the meantime, why don't you get a copy of this book and study it with your Trinitarian friend? It's a deep book, and it's going to help you understand several aspects of New Testament teaching about God and Jesus better. This week's thinking music has been the track Mockingbird Instrumental by David Mumford. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. And before we go, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you gave it an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. Don't forget to love God with all your mind.